0: All right. Good morning. It's such a privilege any time I get to bring God's word to you today. Uh, Such a privilege to bring God's word today, my home church. Man, in the past few months, I've preached at five different churches. I've visited eight different churches sharing our ministry for vision to go up to Quebec. And I've preached at five of those. So I've been making my way around, but it's just so awesome to be here um, with my home church. You guys have been my family. I preached my first sermon here on this stage for Teen Sunday like 12 years ago. So you guys have seen me come a long way, and I really appreciate every one of you. Thank you, Echo. Hmm. Today we're going to be looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be in chapter 2 for this. And what we see in this letter, at least in the first couple chapters, there's a theme about hope. And this quote from Tim Keller kind of draws out a great point here that's actually we can see in this scripture. Tim Keller says that suffering is the stripping of our hope in finite things, Therefore we do not put our Therefore we do not put our ultimate hope in anything finite. So there are all different kinds of things that we place hope in. Financial comfort, physical health, family and friends. All of these things can change at any time. <clears throat> Suffering is when those things are confronted and changed and and really draw out where our ultimate hope is. So we're going to be looking at this subject of hope and how this pertains to a couple different areas of our lives. Our worship, how we respond to God on a daily basis, but also our witness, our testimony of how God has impacted our lives before other people that don't know Jesus. So we're going to be looking at these two things on the subject of hope, and we're going to see that in the human Condition. There are two categories in the human condition in relationship to God that pivot on hope. There are those who do not have ultimate hope. And then there are those who, in Christ, do have this ultimate hope. We're going to see what that difference looks like and how that hope flows out of one's life when it's an active calling in their heart. So that's what we're going to look at today. But I also want to talk about mission, especially mission here in Maine. Maine is a mission field. You might be aware of this. I've lived here for 13 years and I've become aware over time just what a mission field this is with my coworkers, with my neighbors. Um, what's a mission field? A mission field is basically just a an, a location, a place, a people group That has a unique need for the gospel Maine has a unique need for the gospel And if you're approaching this subject Just missions And especially towards a place or people group You want to ask yourself What are some of the unique aspects of this people group That make it a unique mission field What are some of the What's the historical background What are the current cultural trends of the people And when I think of this In the context of Maine there's a couple things that stand out to me that really indicate that this is a mission field. One thing you might be familiar with is that Maine is one of the least religious or least churched states in America. And as recently as last month, Barna Research Group released information on the most post-Christian cities in America, and the Portland-Auburn location was number one on the list. So. That's the first thing that indicates to me that this is a mission field. What does post-Christian mean? It means really that the Bible has no bearing in people's lives. It has no value in how you formulate your position on life and death and marriage and family. The Bible doesn't have any relevance or biblical principles. Christian ideals in culture and politics. So if you're trying to approach a a topic or a discussion or argument with a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, oftentimes it'll be dismissed as irrelevant, outdated, or even judgmental. That's the kind of mission field we're living in. But for, for how, you know, just looking at this statistic, what's interesting also to note, the second point that I would say that makes Maine such a unique mission field is this. Maine is the most peaceful state in America. We have a very, very low crime rate. It's a great place to raise a family, to retire. So Maine is attractive in many ways, and this creates a culture and an environment of just peacefulness. It's the way life should be on our slogan. It's vacation land. So Maine is a great place to live, but what, what conclusion do we draw from these statistics? A convenient conclusion for some would be that where religion is very low, people are more peaceful. But I don't think that's accurate. I think really what this indicates is that Mainers are comfortable, but they're comfortable without God. And I think for this reason, Maine is a tough nut to crack with the gospel. It's hard to enter people's lives because Mainers tend to believe that they don't need God. Mainers are comfortable without God temporarily, I would say. So there's this facade or this illusion of peace that a lot of people live behind. Think of it this way. I was sharing this with Mark, and he shared this illustration with me. I think someone brought this up with him. Picture this peaceful stretch of highway. You're cruising down the road. No one ahead of you, no one behind you. Very peaceful place There's no conflict or, or um, confrontation It's a very peaceful place But it's all circumstantial Driving on cruise control There's no one around you If those circumstances change Then it's very different So now picture a traffic jam person in front of you slams on their brakes So you slam on your brakes And the person behind you honks their horn person next to you swerves in front of you Because your lane starts to move so these are things that really could cause frustration. And at that point, that's when our true nature starts to show. Because now you're wishing that these people all around you did not exist anymore. So that kind of peace um, is really circumstantial. And I mention this because Maine has a very low population density. And I think that contributes to a lot of this, too. There's a lot of elbow room, a lot of room between neighbors. and. Uh, So this kind of contributes to this facade of peace. But there's not a lot of conflict to draw out that nature that exposes our need for God, actually. So we live in a peaceful place, but it's a very uh, post-Christian environment. There's still a deep spiritual need. There's still a deep spiritual darkness here because of our need for ultimate hope. We place our hope in all kinds of finite things, But there's still an eternal spiritual um, need for hope. And happiness and peace don't equate to hope. Especially when that's confronted by sin, our fallen nature, our physical limitations. So this is where we are often unaware of our needs. Our neighbors are unaware of their need for ultimate hope because there's um, such a prominent culture of just comfort, comfort and peacefulness so why would I need God my life is fine is kind of the gist of that the other issue is that we Christians here we tend to actually believe this too we tend to believe that if everything's going well we don't need God if everything's going well for our neighbors we don't need God Oh, thank you Scott Some of the ways that we see uh, the symptoms of this need, our need for ultimate spiritual hope, come out in even our news headlines. Maine is, is a very peaceful place, and yet you see all kinds of um, headlines showing up about suicide, drug addiction, domestic violence. Picture, um, you know, if you're a fan of the Channel 6 news team like myself. You picture this weatherman who just took his life several months ago. seemed to be just this great charismatic personality on TV, and yet confronted by the weight of sin, he took his life. But you would never know behind that facade that there was a deep spiritual darkness. How can we discover this need? And how can we draw out this need, one, in ourselves and in our neighbors? How do we reach Maine? How do we introduce God to people who are happy without him? They've never seen a need for him in their lives. It's got to be through community. It's got to be through you and me. It's got to be through us. A community that Peter describes as always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So this all comes back to hope, which is why my clever sermon title is Hope for You, Hope for M-E, Maine. It's got to be this message of hope. Imagine the difference in the lives of our neighbors if we could speak a message of hope that's impacted our lives into their situation of suffering. That's what we're going to look at in Ephesians today to get an answer for how we meet this need. Our need for hope and that of our neighbors too. So we're going to look at chapter 2 of Ephesians And we're going to start halfway in at verse 11. So I'll read verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. Paul is describing this people who had been separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. As we look at there these two categories in the human condition in relationship to God, one in which there is no hope apart from Christ and apart from God. That's what Paul's saying here. But what really draws me in in reading this is in verses eleven and twelve. He says, remember twice. Therefore, remember, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ. So I think, well, what time is he talking about? And he's referring back to everything that he describes previously in this chapter in verses one through three, where he says, remember, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. My first point to ask is this. Who is he talking about? Dead in your sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Children of wrath. Is he talking about the really bad people, like the extra bad sinners, meaning we're the good people and these are the bad people? He's actually not. He's talking about all of us. We are all part of this first category. Everyone who has been born since Adam and Eve has lived in separation from Christ. He indicates this in a couple ways when he says uh, that we were following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. He says we all were once in that way of life. He says, and we're by, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's not differentiating here. He's saying we are all messed up. We have all fallen short. We have all been separated from Christ. And he says, remember this. Now throughout the Bible, we are called to remember all kinds of great things about who God is and who we are What he's done for us one of the just aspects of our fallen nature is that we forget we forget who God is we forget what he's done for us but we're often called to remember the good things he has done here why is he calling us to remember these things remember that at that time you were dead in your sins remember that you were following the course of the world remember that you were children of wrath why remember these things there's two aspects that this message of hope will speak to. One is our worship and one is our witness. Remembering this fallen condition that we've all been in draws out, it's a powerful tool for our worship and our witness because it highlights the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us who are in Him to bring us out of this fallen condition. Remembering Him Who we were exalts Jesus in remembering what he's done, in the magnitude of what he's done to draw us near to himself. The opposite of this, the opposite of remembering, is to forget. So, in the area of worship, we often forget to give God the worship that is due to such a great Savior. We forget the magnitude of what Christ has accomplished for us. We think things like, you know, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I was born in a Christian family. So these little subtle kind of subconscious thoughts indicate a forgetfulness that, no, at one point, you actually were separated. we were by nature children of wrath. We forget this. Or we think, Jesus saved me, but I've earned my keep. I've repaid some of the debt that he cleared. This is another way that we forget the magnitude of what Jesus has done to clear that. But we also forget this in our witness, our testimony to people that don't know Jesus. We forget that for those still living without God, the lack of hope is a life and death matter. When confronted with the difficult situation that I'm often faced with in the opportunity to share the gospel with a co-worker, I often get scared, and I think, you know, I'm glad Jesus saved me, but my coworkers don't want to hear about that. They're not going to be interested. They don't see any relevance um, to God or the Bible, this need in their lives. So I back off, and I don't share in opportunities where I should. And, you know, our coworkers, our neighbors kind of have this logic about how if God is good, then he will forgive them. Everything's going to turn out fine, even if they don't believe in him. They kind of place God on the, in this situation that, well, if God's going to judge me, well, that's not very nice. So there's this middle zone that, that people often create where they don't want to put their faith in God, but they, if God were to exist, I would think that he wouldn't judge me even if I don't believe in him. So, but here's what happens. When we are passive in the hope that we have in, in Christ and in our redemption, We have this light when we put that under a basket. Basically, we're agreeing with our neighbors. We are basically accepting this logic in our passivity, subconsciously. And we think, I don't want to confront them with the gospel. I don't want to um, risk offending them. So these are some things, some of the ways we forget. um, You know, we forget the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us and how it's available for all. We forget this. Looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians gives us a unique aspect into the original audience, too. This is important for what Paul... Paul was a Jew, and he's writing to this group of people that were Gentiles. We pick up on this in verse 11 when he talks about uh, circumcision. And basically, if I were to just summarize that, he's basically saying, remember that you were Gentiles and we were Jews remember that we were two totally different people groups in, at that time. And they couldn't have been any more different. The Jews had followed the law and the prophets, the Old Testament that we know, and uh, lived by a strict set of rules and ordinances from that. And yet the Ephesians were this people group that worshipped a goddess named Artemis. They had a huge industry around uh, actually, idol, idolatry, making idols to this uh, goddess, as well as uh, witchcraft and, and all kinds of dark arts. Huge industry in Ephesus for that. They were totally two different people groups. Paul is saying, remember that. Remember that you were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. The Commonwealth of Israel is the, li- the lineage and inheritance of the hope that we have in God's kingdom. So to the Gentiles, they were cut off from that. And there was no way into that, even if they wanted. This is what having no hope in, and being without God in the, wor- in the world means to them. To be alienated from that commonwealth and separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise. Those pr- promises that God had handed down to Moses and Abraham and David. So... The Messiah, the Christ, that's Jesus, is really where all of this changes. See, the Messiah is the hope that um, Israel had all the while. All while they were relying on this system of uh, rules and sacrificial appeasement for their sins, they were waiting for a Messiah to come who would fulfill all of that and give them this ultimate hope. But also for the Gentiles as well. When Jesus came it revealed a turning point in god's plan not that god's plan changed to include the gentiles it had always been part of his plan but it was revealed at this time to to bring the gentiles into this lineage this inheritance this has an impact on us too because you and i have no right and claim inherently to this inheritance this these promises the commonwealth of israel but it's through grace and that's what paul talks about through this whole letter. And we see this transition of hope right here in verse 13. So we've read about how we're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And then he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That transition of but now in Christ is actually a reiteration of Verse 4 of the same chapter, after we just read about being dead in your sins, uh, following the course of the world, children of wrath, he says, Now, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the most beautiful, hope-filled transition. Transitioning from this kind of dark remembering this way of life But now there's hope. This opening of this kind of moving from dark to light. But God equals hope. There's this phrase that changes everything, even our circumstances today. My bank account might not give me a lot of reassurance, but God is my provider. My health might fail me, but God is strong. My spouse might let me down, but God is faithful. But God changes every circumstance and every situation. The fact that God is present in in our situation and in our circumstances. It means that there's hope in something ultimate. See, God is ultimate and he is unchanging. That's where we should place our hope beyond present circumstances which are ever-changing. They're always changing. They will always let us down. So how have those who were far off been brought near? As Paul describes in verse thirteen, he says, "By the blood of Christ, you have been brought near." He says in verse sixteen that this was accomplished on the cross. He says, "And and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." He also accomplished this by his resurrection. So by Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. He has brought all of fallen mankind back into reconciliation through him. We see this amazingly in the first chapter of this book. Follow with me in verses uh, 17 to 20. Paul's prayer for the people in Ephesus is this, that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's, He's praying that they would know God having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope, there's the magic word today, hope, to which he has called you, i.e., what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, power that is so great it cannot be measured, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power that God shows towards us in bringing us out of dead in our sins into a relationship with him is the same power that he used in bringing Jesus out of physical death to resurrection on his throne. That same power is at work in you. That power brings you out of chapter 2, verse 1, being dead in your sins, to chapter 2, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's the power of the resurrection that is at work in us. This reconciliation is multi-layered. It's not just about me and God, though it is, but it's also about mankind being reconciled together. So the process by which God has provided reconciliation through Christ reconciles all earthly barriers between fallen man, all of which are fallen, even though for the Jews and the Gentiles, one was far off and one was near. The people of Israel were near to God. They were all fallen, separated. It reconciles all of uh, mankind into one new man. That's what's being described here in verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. so we're being reconciled together into the body of Christ. so the Gentiles had been excluded from Judaism by nationality, by citizenship but now through Christ they are in, adopted into this. here at the cross the religious and the the religious and the irreligious both find hope. And both become one new person. Paul described in verses 11-12, we were totally different people groups. Now we are one. You're no longer a Jew. You are now a Christian. You're no longer a Gentile. You are now a Christian. So there's this new identity in Christ where your background, your, your prior identity, is hidden in that new identity. And he talks about this actually in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So he's uniting all things, and it all hinges on Jesus. We have this new identity now. So at one point he said, you were dead in your sins, separated from Christ, alienated to the covenant, strangers to the promises. And now in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, Because of this reconciliation, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. It's a direct parallel to what he just mentioned. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 19 here is the resulting outcome of our identity, our new redemption. It's the total undoing of our previous condition, our fallen condition in being separated from Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5, describes this whole process of salvation as adoption. If You're going to choose one word for this. Paul chooses adoption when he says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This has huge, a huge impact on us because when you're adopted, you're not in, adopted into a club to belong to. When you're adopted, you're not adopted into a religion. When you're adopted, you're adopted into a home, into a family. You're actually adopted into a new citizenship sometimes, given a new citizenship. This is the process that we have entered into through Christ. God giving us this reconciliation, this ultimate peace, this ultimate hope through Jesus. So again, this affects two areas of our life. Our worship, how we, how we respond to God, as well as our witness, our testimony before people that don't know Jesus. Now, through adoption, we have access to God. Verse 20. Uh, let's see. Actually, verse... Uh, verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's that adoption. We have access to our dad now, our, our father. So now that we have this adoption, we can worship God as our dad at any moment of the day. Now, because of this hope, we can be a witness. We can, we can face the confrontation, the fears that come with um, sharing the gospel or the hope that we have. We can face that because of this hope because Paul is drawing us to remember what it was like to not have that hope. So this should draw us to focus on that, and that should fuel us to remember that at one time we were just like our neighbor, our co-worker, our friend, or our family member without Jesus. This is the one thing that you can give out freely, and it doesn't diminish your supply. The gospel is overflowing, but it requires the Holy Spirit to be active in our lives. This is a calling. It's not a passive thing that we just get to say, yay, I'm saved, now I can go home and live a peaceful life and and not do anything with that. We need to steward the gospel. That means be responsible with it. This is a calling. Paul speaks of hope as a calling in actually chapter 1, verse 18 that his prayer is that the people of Ephesus would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's called on your name to know him, to be adopted by him. He has called on your name. So Jesus calls us to be his witnesses in the world. Peter reminds us to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. Because you never know when our neighbor is going to need it. We might think, my coworker doesn't want to hear about the gospel. They seem like they're having a more peaceful, happier life than me. What do they need to hear from me about? But we have this ultimate hope. Now we can, we can go to them and, and face that um, with this hope that we have. Um, because the difference is life and death. That's the difference that this will make in, in people's lives. And it's the Holy Spirit that really needs to activate this in our lives because we can sit in the comfort of knowing that we have this ultimate hope um, but not do anything about it. But really, the Holy Spirit's going to be the one to motivate us to do this. So the hope for Maine, the hope for our neighbors here, our coworkers, is this gospel that no matter what changes around us, um, we have this ultimate hope. You never know when your coworker is going to be ready to hear it. And you might share the gospel at a time where they aren't interested. But years later, they might lose their job. And they might think back to the witness that you had in their life. Years later, they might get a call from the doctor. And it's a diagnosis that changes their perspective in life. And they might be ready at that time. We, not, we don't know when our neighbors will be ready to hear this message. But we need to be ready at all times when that opportunity comes. It is based on this message of hope and um, this calling that we should all go out from our seats today and in the the week ahead of us to share with our coworkers, our neighbors, and our family members. But it's also based on this that um, personally my family and I are moving to the province of Quebec, Canada to bring the gospel. You know, Canada is is definitely one of the least reached areas, especially the province of Quebec. When it comes to this idea of hope, uh, just looking at some of the things like even the suicide rate, the province of Quebec accounts for 33% of the suicide rate in all of Canada. So there are so many indications of a, of a huge spiritual need in this place. Just like Paul, when he was called to this gospel, He traveled around the region to bring the gospel to the places that had it the least. That hasn't changed. There are still people um, who are called to go and to invest into these areas, just like Paul did, to plant churches like the church in Ephesus and to disciple people to lead that church and to speak into their lives this message, message of hope, calling them to remember the hope that they have so that they can do the work of bringing the gospel to their neighborhoods. This is the work that still is going on today um, that as you guys know, we've been called to as well in our ministry to Quebec. So I just want to bring that up by way of reminder to keep us in your prayers as we go ahead with this message of hope into this area of spiritual darkness. Um, Let me close in prayer and then we're gonna do communion today as a way of remembering the sacrifice um, that Jesus made on the cross in verse 16 here um, so that we can commune together. Jesus, thank you so much for the hope that you've given us in knowing God our Father who created us and calls us by name to, to know him personally, to have access as an adopted son, adopted sons and daughters, here in this room, you've called us together with this message. Jesus, would you please strip away the distractions that that distract us from this hope, this calling? And would you, Holy Spirit, motivate us through this week to be active in sharing the gospel? We need you to do this, Lord. Thank you. Amen.